0: Welcome to the Unwritten Life Podcast,
1: where we share that your deepest pain can lead to your biggest gain, and that your story
0: is still unwritten. Now introducing your host, Tim Sawhook. Sawhook.
1: Welcome to the show today, everybody. So excited to have you on board with me for another episode of the Unwritten Life Podcast. Again, I am your host, Tim Sawhook. And I am blessed to have you guys with me today. If you're in need of hope and encouragement, you have come to the right place. We have an awesome interview for you today. It is very raw, it is very powerful, and it's really going to touch some lives out there today. So I want to put that out there at the beginning. But before we get into all of that, um, we have to have some thank yous. Thank you to everybody who's been listening. Really appreciate it. Last week we had a lot of downloads, um, a lot of conversation going on, and people really connected to Katie Bryant's story. Not so much that, you know, everybody like, oh, great story, great podcast. I was getting messages saying, you know, this really touched me. I could really feel her power of her story. Uh, I'm now listening to it for the second and third time. I have passed it on to other people to listen to, and that is amazing. That means all of you are part of the Unwritten Life family, and you are spreading that message of hope and sharing that inspiration with others. And that's what the whole purpose of the podcast is, is to let hope be a revolution in people's lives and that it spreads like that, like wildfire. And you guys are doing that. So thank you very much, and congratulations to you for doing that. That means you are impacting lives as well. Also, don't forget, we are going to have some bonus episodes coming up. I talked about it last week briefly. There's going to be a segment called Ask the Coach. It's going to be a life coach. And right now, some people are like, you know, I hear these stories of people who have been through it, and now they've come through on the other side with success and maybe some hope and maybe some direction in their life. And how do I get that? Where do I stand in the unwritten life? How do I achieve that? How do I attain that? Well, we're going to have a segment on where we're going to give practical ideas and tips on how to achieve that unwritten life, how to get to that next step, And leading up to that, I'm going to be asking questions of you guys. I want to know your questions that you have. I'm stuck. Where do I need to go? Things of that nature. And we're going to answer those on the air. And hopefully it's going to touch lives and it's really going to add value to your day. Before we get to the show today, here's a quick word from our sponsors. (music)
0: Are you ready to pack your bags and get away? Let Exclusive Travel Partners help you plan the perfect vacation. From all-inclusives on the beach, to your own European vacation, or taking the family to Disney World, we are here to match the perfect vacation to your needs and budget. And best of all, our service is always free. Contact us at exclusivetravelpartners.com. Mention code UNWRITTEN for a $25 travel credit to use on your next vacation with us. At Exclusive Travel Partners... You are always the VIP.
1: Well, like I promised at the top of the show, we have another amazing episode. I've had the privilege of meeting our guest today. Her name is Jessie Richardson. She is a personal trainer, she is a wife, she is a survivor, and she is an overall badass. Here is my conversation with Jessie Richardson. Well, I'd like to welcome to the show today, Jesse Richardson. How are you doing today, Jesse?
0: Oh, I'm so good. Today's been a great day.
1: Good. I'm so happy that you agreed to come on and tell your story and share it with people. So Jesse has a very powerful story, and I think it's really going to impact a lot of people's lives, and it's we're going to give some awareness to some uh, things that are really going on out there. But before we get into that, like I do with all my guests, I want to know from the beginning. Let's start from the beginning. What was it like growing up for you, Jesse?
0: You know i think i had a pretty normal childhood i um i had a sister and she was almost the same age as me 14 months apart in fact um she was uh <laughs> she was the athletic one and um, she was um the stable one i guess you would say um and we were pretty inseparable and um, for you know a long time my mom owned her own business she made pillows for a living um, and you'll come to find this later but um i now, I'm an entrepreneur, and I think that's a part of who I am, and I think my mom helped to build that. Um,
1: that's cool. Actually, do what? So, that's cool.
0: Yeah. It is cool. It is cool. And um, My dad worked full-time, um, corporate America. Mm-hmm. He's an engineer. Um, brilliant, though. And, you know, my dad, actually, he grew up in a boy's home, and his he didn't have his parents. And, um, you know, I, I think that he worked really hard to give us the life that, you know, you could only really... Like, I really felt like when I was, like, five, I was like, we're rich. Like, we weren't rich. <laughs> At the time, we had this brand new house, and, you know, this, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it was this place in our world where I was like, wow, we are really well off, and we have this really wonderful life. And, um, you know, I think, I think it's just what you imagine. It's, a, you know, you're, you're playing in the summertime in the pool with your sister, and um, then you have to go to school, and everybody hates going to school, and then you get home mm-hmm. from school, and it's the whole nine yards, you know. Um, And so that's kind of where my world started, and it was nothing special. Uh, Maybe it was special to me, but it was just like a childhood, and it was a great child, and I had great parents.
1: Where did you grow up at?
0: At Keller, Texas. Actually, I started off in North Richland Hills, Texas. I was born there, and then we moved at the age of five to Keller, Texas, which is where I live now.
1: All right. So you stayed in Texas. All right. So Texas Uh, girl.
0: A little bit, but I came back.
1: All right. So Texas girl at heart. You stayed there. You left, came back. All right. So as you're growing up and stuff, where does your story start to evolve a little bit as a, as a young girl?
0: Yeah, um, you know, it's so interesting. Um, I think my story started to really evolve when I was uh, about nine. Um, we went on vacation, and I um, it was a normal family vacation. We went to the beach. We're staying in this, like, condo. And... And I felt, I had this moment, um, I was playing with my sister and I had this moment and it's, um, it's like a brain, something happened in my brain and, and things kind of switched. And, um, and in that moment I, I developed, um, for the first time ever, uh, mental illness and it's, and people, you know, sometimes people say that they were born with it. And then, you know, but I, I don't think I was born with it. I think that, um, I think something, something in an instant, in my body turned, and nothing happened to me to make this a hap- make this happen. Um, but I, something just turned inside of my brain, and I can remember the instance, and I can remember the moment. And you know, I was really, I was never the same from that point forward, and it, um, it triggered a series of changes in my life. Um, and I developed um, severe OCD, um, which over time developed into severe. Um, separation anxiety and severe sleep insomnia and severe depression uh, and that's that started at nine and um you know this is many years ago many moons ago this is in the 90s right. and people didn't really you know there weren't if there were words for these things um they didn't talk about them back then it wasn't like you don't just your child having problems take them to counseling that wasn't right. back then, you know and so that's really where things started to turn for me
1: so as a young girl, age nine, you have this switch in your mind and you're starting to feel differently and you're not sure what's happening. What is young Jesse feeling at this point? What did you feel like? Did you feel like I did something wrong? Something bad's happening in my body. What was going on?
0: Yeah. So um, this part's one of the hardest parts to tell, um, but it was this weird moment where all of a sudden um, I, I felt like I was hearing voices and I, I can't. There's no other way to explain it than that. Now, did I physically hear voices? No, but I felt a presence, and it was speaking to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And at nine years old, I, I had not been taught about sex. I had never been abused, um, you know, to my knowledge, I guess, um, but I've never been abused. Um, and this voice was basically telling me that I had to have sex, um, at nine years old, and, and I didn't even know what sex was, and mm-hmm. I remember when I had this, like, meltdown, and I'm, I'm sitting there with my mom, and I'm I'm trying to explain to her, and I'm, you know, at nine years old, you're scared to even have that conversation with your mom, right. and I explained to her what I was feeling, and she tried her hardest to understand, but she doesn't know what's going on, mm-hmm. and ultimately, she thought maybe I was having, like, a bladder infection, and right. so we sat on the toilet, and I was panicking, you know, and I'm, I'm having this, I'm having this voice, and this thing happened to me, and I, I have no tools at all to understand even how to, at nine, to, to even handle this situation, and again, I still don't even know what sex is. I mean, I remember her asking me specifically, what is sex to you, and I didn't even have an answer, and so it's, it's a very weird thing, but I was mm-hmm. definitely having feelings, um, and it was very scary, very scary feelings, um, and so anyway, she sat me down in the toilet thinking maybe it was a bladder infection. Right. And And she told me, I remember that she said, you know, sweetie, your heart and your mind control your body. And the only, what's crazy is that that carried with me for the duration of my experience. And I would have this panic attack and I'm sitting here having this panic attack and I would just rock. And that's all I could do. I just rock. And I would say, your heart and your mind control your body. And I would sit there and I'd hold myself and I would rock and she would sit there on the floor and she just sat there and I just kept repeating it. I kept repeating it and I kept repeating it until I was calm enough to sleep and then she put me to bed and we ended up I think ending that vacation early I feel like and and I know we were driving home and we had to stop like every 30 minutes because I had to stop and get on the toilet and I had to rock and I had to say this mantra Mm -hmm. and I did it the whole way home and and it became um it became a part of me. That mantra became a part of me. Um and it, it developed into other things. There was a point in my time in my um, in these years that, you know, the, the voices started to tell me that I was going to kill somebody um, and it was very real and I couldn't walk, there was a drawer in our kitchen, the knives were, mm-hmm. and then it was that I was going to kill, it was gonna, mainly my mom, I was going to kill my mom with the knife and I wasn't going to be able to control that and I couldn't walk past that point in the kitchen um, without the mantra. Um, mm-hmm. And every time I saw a knife, I had to say the mantra and um, it, my, my mom would take naps on the couch and that's when it would be most vivid to me and I would have these voices because mm-hmm. I'm awake and she's asleep and I, it's opportunistic and it, it's, it's a voice and it's telling me it's going to happen and it's going to happen whether I want it to happen or not. And um, I would sit in the corner of my room and I would rock and I would say your heart and your mind control your body, your heart and your mind control your body and I would rock and I would rock until the voices went away. And uh,
1: it's weird. I mean, does it sound weird? Yeah, it does. Definitely sounds a little strange because nobody can fathom what that's like. No one can fathom being at that young age, having these very big imprinted feelings on our minds, hearing those voices. I mean, these are severe things. At nine years old, you're thinking, I need to have sex. Not even knowing what that is, not even having the language to convey that to your mom when she asked that, you know, you're not emotionally ready to discuss that as a nine-year-old and then also have these feelings later on that you were going to kill your mom and having to have that chant over and over again. Um, When you guys got back home, what was your parents' role in this? Did they take you to doctors? Did they say, we need to find out this, that, and the other? What happened?
0: Yeah, so um, they took me to a regular doctor um, to check for a bladder infection. That's -hmm. that's the only doctor I went to. Um, You know, back then, it wasn't – it wasn't a thing, you know, to take you to a counselor or a psychiatrist. And I think, you know, specifically in my family's world, it wasn't a thing. We didn't talk about that. Nobody in our family had gone to a counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody had gotten help. Um, and you know, I think like, the biggest thing is that my mom, she was there and man, she, she didn't, she didn't stop, man. She stayed right there. In fact, she changed her whole life. She stopped sleeping in the bed with my dad and she started sleeping in the bed with me. Um, so that if I had a, Panic attack or an outbreak, she would be there um and then you know my dad what unfortunately happened is I fell really far away from my dad, and my dad fell really far away from my mom mm. um, and my sister and my dad they got really close, but my mom and my sister fell really far apart, and so this this was a pretty pivotal thing with it it really destroyed my family and you don't you don't know it you know until you're older, and you can look back as a married woman and say that that's what happened right and it happened and you know. My mom wouldn't take it back for the world. And...
1: But you know what? That time your mom made a choice yeah. for you. And that wasn't a choice that you made. You were a young girl who needed help. You were struggling on levels that a lot of people can't understand or even recognize. And your mom made a choice. You know, did things happen because of that choice? Yes. But as a parent, I am today, I would do anything for my kids. And I would make that choice, you know, and if things got strained on the other end, I'd have to deal with that later. But I would make that choice to be there for my kids. And your mom did that. So that's not on you, Jesse. Yeah. And I understand that now as an adult, you see that and you see how these things divided and point A leads to point B. But that that's not your fault. Yeah. But, but I understand as a person who has all the feelings and has a heart it, that it would look that way. And it must have been harder even as a young girl seeing that happen Uh, maybe not knowing what was going to look like down the road but to see that things are a little bit different between mom and dad now that happy life you talked about at the beginning where we felt rich and on top of the world you could feel a change in the family is that right
0: yeah there was an absolute shift and, and in my me and my sister too we we really we fell apart and um you know I can look back now and I can I can see why that happened and um, and it's she just she needed attention and she was striving for that and um I unfortunately I couldn't I couldn't even be in another room without having a panic attack. Um, I had to be within a certain like couple of feet and voice distance from my mom and if I couldn't hear her I would panic. Um, and you know there's a lot of things that go into that but I think I you know ultimately you know I wish my parents had had more tools back then and right. I wish they would have known that they could have taken me to a psychiatrist. You know, I wish that they could have known that, but they couldn't have, and they didn't. And, um, you know, I think, you know, one tip I have for parents now, um, if you see something, say something, if you see something, take them, what's the worst that could happen? They, they don't talk to them and you're the same place that you are. You never right. know. You just try, you don't know. And I, I would do anything to be able to go back and and have somebody help me through this for sure. Um, Not the way that my mom could. My mom was amazing, but I I needed way more help than that. You know, it got to the point where, you know, I was washing my hands and my hands would bleed because I was washing them so much. And I was washing my hair so much that it would, um, I don't know if you know this, but if you wash your hair a lot, your hair actually gets oilier. And so I couldn't go three hours without washing my hair because my hair got getting oilier because I was washing it. I had to shower Every time I touched something that felt a little dirty or that maybe might have maybe been dirty at one point, I would shower. So I was showering five or six times a day. Um, And so it was causing a ton of, well, first of all, I broke out with massive acne and And I, you know, I also had OCD, so then I would pick the acne, and so then I had craters on my face, and I had craters on my body because I was picking, picking, and picking, and it was all OCD, you know, Mm -hmm. and all these things, they're all weighing together, and it's, it's the washing that's making my skin break out because there's not enough natural oils, and it's, there's just all these crazy things that you don't realize are happening, but if, if you've been, if you had been prepped with the tools, and I wish my parents had had anybody there to help them through this. To be prepped with those tools, they would have known what was going on. I was being treated for things individually. I was being treated for my my OC I had ADD and OCD, so I was being treated for um, my ADD, and then I was being treated for my acne. But the psychological issues underlying, there was a no psychiatrist there to guide that.
1: Right. So growing up at this point, what age are you when this is happening?
0: I'm somewhere between. Well, I know it was fifth grade when the hand washing happened, um, and Just for the audience to know, um, I have not talked to my family about this. Besides my sister, I have not talked to my family about this. Um, I don't have a chronological timeline because where my family is now, it's not a healthy place for us to be able to talk about this. But I know it's somewhere between fifth grade and um, me being 12 years old in seventh grade. So somewhere in the two-year gap.
1: So during that time frame when this all started on that vacation leading up to the severe OCD and the things that you're going through, just to be right for the audience, you didn't have any kind of support counselor, psychiatrist, any of that?
0: No, I didn't have any any, any of that. My mom was a godsend, um, but I, that's, she's the only one I had.
1: So she really took on a huge burden then, because she was everything to you. Everything. Were you able to go to school?
0: That was one of the hardest things. Um, I would go to school, well, my dad was very good. He got her a cell phone. Um, my dad, he didn't handle this well um, and he didn't know how to. And so he got her a cell phone, which was the only way he knew how to support me. And so um, I would have panic attacks if, she, if I couldn't reach her. But obviously back then it was landlines. Cell phones had just come out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he got her one, which obviously was a big financial burden on this. Um, but I, would, I went home from school or I went, no I shouldn't say go home from school. If I couldn't get a hold of mom, I ended up going home from school because of a panic attack but every single day I went to the nurse's office and I would say that my stomach hurt and they would let me call my mom. And if I got a hold of her, I could finish out class. And if she was at home, I could finish out class. But if she had to drive anywhere, if she told me she had to run to the grocery store, I would have a panic attack and she would have to come pick me up and we'd have to go to the grocery store together and then she could drop me back off. Um, and I went to work with her too. So she, she worked from home during the week, but on the weekends she went and sold at a flea market in off Henderson Street in Fort Worth. <laughs> and so I spent my weekends with her at Henderson Street in Fort Worth selling pillows because I couldn't um I couldn't be away from her that long.
1: That's tough. I mean you're you're going to work with your mom. Your mom see the aspect that I was thinking of is your mom probably didn't have much of a life. Because yes. she Now, I mean, I'd say our kids are our lives, but I mean, just as far as having any kind of personal space or anything for herself, you were there, you needed her all the time and she was all in on that.
0: All in. She never once questioned it. She never, there was a few times I remember and now as a grown woman, I can look back and I can say that's what she was trying to do. She needed Mm -hmm. space and she would lock the door when she went to the bathroom and it was because she needed space, but I would sit outside the bathroom door and I would wait, you know, because Mm I just, I, I felt like if I... Stepped on a crack in the house, or if I, and I walked outside, she was gonna die.
1: Yeah, and that that's a tough burden for you to bear because you, you're when you have the mental illness of that extent, there's no real reason.
2: There's no
1: reason. You no, know, there's no reason. None of, the, none of the things that you're going through are really based in reality. You know, but none. they are very real to you. Yeah. You know. If anyone's heard my story, I've been there before. I've heard those voices. I've been things like that that are dark. And it, to you, it feels so real that it's going on, and it, it is real. And that's your experience. But for anybody else who's seeing that, there's, there's no real. Like, obviously, if I step on a crack, my mom's not going to die. But to you, you felt that, and that was very scary to you, especially being a young girl. Yeah. Um, with you being in and out of school and stuff, how did that impact you socially growing up?
0: Uh, I only had one friend and um, she was wonderful and she's still my best friend today um, her name is stacy and uh, hey,
1: stacy a big shout out
0: stacy's amazing stacy's amazing and um, 20 gosh i guess 26 years now we are best friends um, and awesome she really stuck it out with me and um, i would try to stay the night at her house and i would have a panic attack and um, my mom would come get me and um i couldn't i got to a point where i couldn't go really even over to her house at all because of this, the disorder, and mm-hmm. um, she would come to my house anyway. Um, and there was a time where her mom wouldn't let her come to my house because I wouldn't go to her house, and that she didn't understand what I was going through. And now, and over time, because Stacy loved me so much, she would push and she would push, and her mom would finally let her come over. But all of my friendships and all of my relationships—they um, only happened if they happened at my house. And Stacy was really the only one I had until I was in seventh grade. Um, that was really, she was kind of my go-to light, and we, we started um, our friendship in kindergarten, and and so, you know, there's many years of it, and and so she's, she's she was with me the whole way, and she still is, she still is today. I mean, we can go back and talk about some of those things now, and mm-hmm. she's one of the few people that remembers those terrible times. Right. <laughs> she went with me to my mom's work at the flea market, which is a dirty, 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 nasty place. <laughs> because i wanted her there but i had to be with my mom and so she was really wonderful
1: that's amazing you have that friend then and still now today who stood with you during that time let me ask you about like a different aspect of this um so we said that you know your mom probably felt very isolated did you feel like you were your family's dirty little secret like nobody knew what was going on outside the walls of your home in the school
0: um i didn't we we weren't super close. My dad didn't know his family and then my mm-hmm. mom's dad died when she was young and I had some I had my grandparents, um, but I think at the time. Um, I felt like my own dirty secret. I felt oh. like I couldn't tell anybody what I was going through because they were going to send me to an insane asylum and that was my constant fears if anybody found out and so um, I never felt like I was my family's dirty secret. I felt like I, was, like I was constantly even keeping it sometimes from my family. Like I was keeping it from okay. my sister. My sister had no real concept of what was happening. And we never talked about it at that time. Like she's at that time, she didn't know about the voices. She didn't know about any of that. And mm-hmm. um, so I was, I was kind of my own, like my family's own, like I, in my, my mind, I was our dirty secret. And it was probably only like, I didn't even think about everyone else and what they think of me. I only thought about like, I got to keep this from even my sister and even my dad. And I just got to, I got to keep it as far away as I can. And if they have to see little bits of it, that's okay. But they don't have to know the, the source.
1: Well, the reason I was asking, and I would have a follow-up question to that, with your parents being, have their, their own kind of separation going through this and being isolated because, you know, your mom's spending all this time with you. Um, how How would you say to anybody who's going through that to be able to contact, let's say, your mom in this situation who sees that, something severely is going wrong with her daughter she obviously has got some things going on and she feels isolated how can someone reach out to that person
0: that's such a great question you know i um i wish somebody had and i think i pray that now it's it's more common to, to mm-hmm. go to a counselor but i wish somebody had told my family that you know there's something wrong and if you i think my biggest thing and that's something i'm kind of living by is if you see something say something even if it's painful because they're burying something, and they're burying it, and they're burying it, and eventually it is going to come out, and it's going to come out, and it could be too far gone, and ours was, ours was too far gone, and the marriage ended, and our family ended, and it ended in, in fire, it didn't end soft and slow and calm, it ended in fire, um, and I think, you know, I wish somebody had been there for my dad to help him through this. And I wish somebody had been there for my mom to help her through this. And ultimately, you know, just transparency. My family didn't have, I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, my family, my mom and dad, they didn't have an emotional connection like they should have anyway. Um, And so that made it even worse. And so I think for me, like, I, um, especially, you know, with me and my husband now, I pray that I have people in my life that they will see was they will see something's not right and they will be brave enough to say something because ultimately, we all need people. Mm -hmm. And I think if if you know somebody and you're sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, I wonder if this is what they're going through, take them to coffee and tell them you care about them Mm -hmm. and ask them if something's going on and tell them this is private, you can keep it between you and me, but I am here to help and give them an outlet because they need it, They they need it. And if you ever think that there's mental illness in the family, You've got to tell them to get help because I don't care who you are.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. I don't care who you are. You need a doctor. If you are mentally ill, you need a doctor. It doesn't fix itself. You will try to fix it. People will try to fix you. It doesn't fix itself. You have to go get help. You have to go get medical help.
1: No, I think that's very well said. People know my platform. Mental health is a big thing for me, especially mental health awareness and talking about it. Um, being sick in your head is no different to being sick anywhere else in your body, and you shouldn't be ashamed of that. It's just a different kind of sickness. And mental health touches everybody. And I wanted to use this analogy on my podcast, and I didn't do it. I, met, I wanted people to picture sitting down at a dinner table with everybody, and you have all the fancy cups and plates and napkins there, and someone spills their cup, and the water spills all over the table and touches everything. That is mental illness in a family. It touches everybody. And there's everybody who knows somebody who's been touched by it. And you know what? If you spill water on a table and it touches you, you don't try to hide and just take the table out and throw it in the garbage. You talk about it and you deal with it. And I want you guys to know, if you've been touched by that, it's okay. Talk about it. Just like Jesse said, people don't want to feel isolated. Yeah. I don't mean to get on the soapbox about mental illness, but it's a big deal. And I think it's important to say mental illness is okay. I agree. I want to be it's just as simple as saying I broke my arm. It's okay. People wouldn't judge you for a broken arm, and they shouldn't judge you for mental illness either. So as you're growing up, and then you see your family splitting apart, and you you really don't have any connection or relationship with your dad, um, how did that impact you as far as relationships with younger boys and men? Were you seeking attention that you didn't get because you didn't have that anymore?
0: I absolutely did. You know, and it's interesting. So I told you that as quickly as like that switch turned in my brain, that Mm -hmm. this illness like occurred, it also turned off. Um, Not the OCD, but um, the depression and um, the voices, those those turned off. And it happened, I was 12 and it was overnight. My mom was sleeping in my bed with me one night. And the very next night, I couldn't have her even put her hand on me. So I want to bring out one more thing to this. I wish I had had tools and I wish my mom had had tools because I can't imagine how painful that must have been for her to go from having to hold my hand every single moment of every single hour to all of a sudden, she would touch me and I would freak out. I would freak out. And that is something that I think a lot of people probably go through and they don't Mm -hmm. even realize that it's happening. um, And they don't realize that um, that's still the mental illness. I was sick you know, and so my, my, everything switched for me. I couldn't have her touch me. And that was the OCD. And so everything just turned. It went from one end to the next end. And I think, you know, over the course of this period of time, my sister, she's developing and she's becoming this beautiful, beautiful blonde, like bombshell of a woman. And she's Mm -hmm. becoming this, um, this incredibly athletic and incredibly smart, um, girl. And, um, Meanwhile, like I'm in this like very broken place. And you know, she kept getting like these, these accolades and I kept um, like hiding in the shadows.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and then I would try to follow her because I was like, okay, I can do that. I can be I can be her. I can do that thing that she's doing. And I would try and I would never succeed at it. And you know, all the while I'm I'm my sister's pulled so far away from me and I I feel so alone. And mm-hmm. um, and you don't have any real place to go in this in this period, and you don't really know where to where to be and where to go. Um, I I I think for me, like I started to um, I well, I found Jesus first off. Um, that was a really powerful thing. And the story to finding Jesus is a long one because you know there is no Christianity. In my family we did not grow up Christian.
2: Mm-hmm. So how
0: I found Jesus is a whole nother podcast, but. Um, <laughs> I found Jesus and, you know, it was interesting. I was very misguided and, um, I got, I got better enough. I got better enough to feel like I could help other people. And I found myself reaching out to people that I think were broken Mm -hmm. um, and that I could save. Um, and that is so crazy to me looking back now because it's so misguided. Um, and it's so broken and, and I, you know, my parents were separating and, you know, I don't think that they were in a place to even be able to, like, nobody felt like they could say this isn't right and we're going to stop it because mm-hmm. they were trying so hard just to not push our, us kids away further. That's what they were trying so hard not to do. And ultimately what ended up happening is, um, my first, um, I had a, a boy, I got, uh, I went into high school, I'm 14, um, and I'm dating and, uh, I had some good relationships, um, Mm -hmm. fun relationships, relationships you have in high school, just normal relationships. Um, And I went from that into um, a really bad one. And I think like this really bad one, it all stems from insecurity. Um, I think that's the only reason you do those things,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: insecurity. Um, And I, I can't say that for sure, but I can definitely say that, you know, I fell into a bad relationship that... If you looking at it from the outside, you would see it, and you would say, this is not right, and this is not good, but I didn't see that. Right. It, that's wild to me that I could see that. Um, he was older. I was, um, I, was 15, um, when we I was 15 when we started dating. I think I might have been – yeah, uh, I was 15 when we started dating. He was 18, and um, I think I just turned 15. And, you know, I'm dating this guy, and um, I end up losing my virginity to this guy, and, um, you know, it it's a weird thing because, you know, you, you think you're so close to somebody, and then things start to fall apart, and um, they, you know, you do everything you can, I think sex is such a scary thing because it, it makes people feel like they should fight, women specifically, Feel like they should fight really hard to maintain a relationship regardless of its health, and, um, and that's pretty much what happened. I, I lost my virginity to this guy, and everything changed, and um, he became very possessive, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it started, it started verbal. You know, um, he would tell me things like, you know, you don't need to wear that to school, and you don't need to put makeup on, I used to dress very cute for school Mm -hmm. and he would tell me that I didn't need to do these things. And then, you know, if I continued to do them, eventually he would tell me that he feels like I'm doing them because I want to impress other other men, other guys. Right. And so, you know, you're like, well, I don't want you to feel this way. And so you start to change your behavior and you stop wearing makeup and you start wearing sweatpants to school. And um, and then then all of a sudden he doesn't want you hanging out with certain people, you know, Mm -hmm. And, and you love this person. So you're like, you know what? Okay. Well, I won't hang out with this person. But, but first what they do is they just invite you over every single day, you know, and they, mm-hmm. they start fill your time. And right. when you start to hang out with other people, they blame you. They blame you because you don't care enough about them to want to spend that moment with them. Mm-hmm. And there's no healthy boundaries at all. And, you know, with with in this situation, um, you know, we, we got to a place where he started I, I remember a specific moment where I realized things are really broken, and we were out at my horse barn, I, worked, I, was, I had horses, and we were cleaning out the stalls, and he um, somehow we got into some topic that he told me that my sister was a whore, and my mom was a whore, and that I was nothing but a whore, and he pinned me with his hand against my throat against the barn door, and... I don't really remember how I came down from that. I don't remember where we went from there. I, I was 15 years old and I was in love with an older guy. And right. we're in this place. And I'm a, I'm a fighter, man. And I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure I would not have let him do that. So I'm sure that when, we, when he let me down or whatever, I probably slapped him, I don't even know. Um, which obviously is not healthy, but I'm, I'm sure I did.
1: Um, well, you were fighting. Let's you're start. fighting for yourself. So th- that's yeah. – it's okay. It'd be different if you were just going around slapping people in the face.
2: Right. <laughs> that's a own
1: story. If you're, yeah. if you're protecting yourself, that's okay. Let yeah. me ask you a question real quick Yeah. because I, you're telling me how things are getting bad. When it first started and you talked about you had just become – you'd really found God and you were out – you're trying to save people and – but you didn't have value for yourself. It doesn't sound like you felt like you were worth saving at this point. Is that what led to being so vulnerable and being open to something like this?
0: I'm sure it is. I know that for me, um, I was pouring into a particular woman at this time, um, mm-hmm. and she was helping me in so many ways. And I, I don't know exactly what happened, and it's embarrassing for me to say this, but I think that I clinged onto her so tight that at some point she had to put a boundary up, kind of mm-hmm. like I did with my mom, and she had to put a boundary up. Um, and when I lost her is when I lost my value, I think. And right after that is when this situation happened with this guy. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
0: And so I think I was finding my value in people. I was finding my value and my love in people. Um, and I didn't really have it of my own. I didn't, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere and I didn't have anyone.
1: Well, I think, I mean, if you, what we've talked about already in the podcast is you went from being in a school where you only had one friend and now you're starting to develop as a young woman to get that attention from somebody, especially a a, a male and an older male, you know, when you lost out on your dad, that must've been a good feeling for you. Cause if you go from just having one friend that you could barely have a sleepover with to getting attention from boys, who, who's not going to feel better about that. Right. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. It Abs- makes sense now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I don't, I don't I want to put up, anything on this podcast saying that anybody who gets in a relationship is their fault. It's not your fault, you know, but I just wanted to, for your story, I, I can see it kind of unfolding going from yeah, you know, all these different things. I don't have any value to someone loves me and they really want me and they want me all the time. What's wrong with that? And yeah. then things start to develop, getting a little worse for you. Is that right?
0: Yeah. And I think too, um, you know, whether he, he meant it or didn't mean it, you know, mm-hmm. he would talk to me about some of his, emotional troubles and turmoils and I think that that made me feel normal, Mm -hmm. made me feel like I can help because I've done that and I've been there. Right, I can help you, you know, and I think that, I don't know if that was manipulative or not. Looking back now, I feel like it was, but now I also, as a grown woman, I can say, you know what, maybe he was really sick, you know, I can go Mm -hmm. both directions with this Um, and I try not to judge because ultimately, well, you'll hear the rest of my story. And I think ultimately, he was sick. You know, you don't go down this path if you're not. Or maybe he learned it. I don't know. Um, But, you know, in in the end, what ended up happening is, you know, this progressed. And that was the verbal. Um, I feel like I remember a pitchfork. I feel like I might have thrown a pitchfork at him right after this um, against the wall thing. Um, And I don't, you know, I think that when you fight back, women, when we fight back, and I don't, you know, out there that have actually studied you know domestic violence um you know from my perspective mm-hmm. when you fight back it gets worse um you should if you're if you're in a dangerous situation you know sometimes staying quiet and leaving in the dead of the night um, as an analogy is is what you have to do because it um you don't realize how strong men are um, and i didn't realize how strong men were until this um but over time you know we we had some circumstances where we would and um, we would get in an argument and um, I remember the next time he touched me he shook me um, and the moment you know he shook me he knew he had done wrong and he grabbed me and he hugged me and then I tried to I tried to push him away and he would beat me in the back while he was hugging me and I remember like and then he would cry he would cry and he would cry because he felt so bad but he had all this rage and he would do it again and it would just It was like this constant, like Mm -hmm. mental battle that he was having, and when he would cry, I would console, and it was like this terrible, like vicious cycle. And unfortunately, it kept getting worse. And you know, I told you this the other day, but you know, at one point we, I took off running down the street, and he chased me down. He threw me on the concrete, and um, and then he cried. I think he cried at that one. I can't remember. There were times that he would get mad and he would stay mad for a little bit longer period of time and then mm-hmm. he would cry later and um, or he would ask for forgiveness later. And, um, you know, I think the end, kind of the end game one for us was, um, uh, I, I can't remember the circumstance and the situation, but I was in his house. His family wasn't home and we were starting, he was trying to apologize. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing he was probably trying to apologize for what had happened previously, some shaking or some hitting of some kind or name calling I'm sure or something. And I was standing there and I looked at the door, the back door, which he had already locked. I watched him lock it. And I took off towards the front door and he, and he grabbed me down and I fell and he had his hands on my ankle and he crawled, you know, he crawled on top of me and basically said, I can't go anywhere. Or, I'm not going anywhere. And mm-hmm. um, I remember in that moment, up until that point, I had always kind of thought I could fight back and that you can be strong enough. Like, you don't realize, women, you don't realize how much stronger a man is than you. And I'm a trainer. And I, I never, like, now I can, I can really appreciate it. I can see it every day. Mm-hmm. But you don't see that every day. And you have no idea. How much stronger their body weight in and of itself is over you and mm-hmm. it just is and I, I think at that moment was when it became a little bit more scary for me and when it became a little bit more real. And um you know he he got up, he locked the front door um and we talked and um somehow I ended up still there and then there was this final night um where we got in some fight about something and his family wasn't home and um I can't
2: remember how we ended up fighting, um, but I tried to run out and he grabbed me
0: down again and I hit the floor. And somewhere along this we ended, or we got up and I think I slapped him and um, he grabbed me and this is the most violent I think he had gotten um, and he threw me on the bed and um, he was straddling me. And he um, he was calling me names and I said I was very mad. <laughs> um, and yeah, I said imagine. yeah <laughs> and I said, you know, you're not a man. You're not a man because you can hold a woman down. You're nothing but a pussy. And I spit in his face. Um and he had his he had my hands pinned and He just slapped me and backhanded me and slapped me and then backhanded me. And then um, I don't remember too much after that. I know I hit him back. Um, At some point, though, his family came home, and it was like I went home. And um, we never talked about that. Like, we never talked about that experience to my knowledge. I don't remember ever talking about that. Um, roll around a couple of weeks later, we are not really talking anymore. We're not dating anymore. Like we've, in, it's ended. It's we are, for the most part, ended. I mean, we were we were still like texting every now and again, but I think we had right. terms that it was over.
1: Um, hey, Justin, let me ask you a question real quick. Yeah. I didn't want to interrupt your story there, yeah. and I. But before we go on any further. You talked about a lot that the pattern was he would either slap you, hit you, say something to you, verbal abuse, but then immediately apologize and say you were sorry. As an adult now and probably dealing with other ladies, how common is that in an abusive domestic violence situation?
0: So, so common. In fact, I ended up pressing charges, which we'll talk about in a little bit, Um, and I only pressed charges. I actually lied for him and lied for him and lied for him whenever the police came to me about this because somebody Mm -hmm. reported the, the bruises. When they when that happened, I lied for him for days, and they made me sit in the p- police office at school, mm-hmm. and they would hound me, and they would, you know would batter me with questions, and I would lie, and I would lie, and then they would catch me in a lie because I had said one thing, then I changed the story later, and it was I was always blaming myself, like I you know I tried to jump out of a moving vehicle, and he grabbed me. That's not true at all. Um, he grabbed me, and that's why I had handprints on my arms. You know, like there were other stories, but I would make these lies up and right. um, these stories up, and um, you know when this was whenever it finally like came full circle for me tim is when they handed me a pamphlet and they said he probably did this to somebody else and they didn't say anything and they didn't do anything and Mm -hmm. that's why it's happening to you and if you don't say something and you don't do something it's going to happen to somebody else right and that was like the ultimate decision maker and it it was so true because i looked at this pamphlet And it talked about how it starts with like this verbal, like this possessiveness, and then this verbal abuse, and then it goes to the actual abuse. And it's a chronological circle, and then the apologies and all of these things, and it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm in this place. Mm -hmm. I can't believe this is me.
1: Did you feel like you were looking at a blueprint of your relationship right in front of you?
0: Right in front of me. And the, the biggest thing was we had only been together about nine months. Wow. The idea, and one of the things that I'm pretty sure, either one of my family members or the police officer, Dr. Han- or, uh, officer Hamlin, said to me was, you've only been together a short time. If it's gotten this far already, where will it be a year from now?
1: One thing I wanted to bring up, when we had talked about your story, we did a phone call a week ago or so, you talked about what a big hero the officer was to you, and what did that mean to you that someone recognized something and stood up for you when you really couldn't stood up for yourself? What, what was that like for you?
0: Oh my gosh, I will. Um, I should really reach back out to him because, you know, he wouldn't even he wouldn't stop. Man, he could have easily like given himself a, a break and just let me go because I lied and I lied and I lied and I, lied and I kept saying that none of those mm. things were happening. And he could have just let it go because I was not giving up. And I can't tell you how many days I had to sit in that office. It felt like a century but he just kept pushing and he kept pushing, and if it weren't for him, I don't know if I would have had the courage to do what I did and to, to actually press charges, um, and once I did, once it was time and I had to press charges, the, the officers called my parents, and up until that point, my parents didn't know. Nobody knew um, this was happening. Nobody. I think, my best, I think one of my best friends At the time, Kara, no, she didn't know because I told her after. It was -hmm. was after. So, yeah, I think at that point, nobody knew what was going on. My sister was the most aware. Okay. um, But not, she didn't know that abuse was happening. She just knew she did not like him. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She didn't like how he was pulling us away. And, um, you know, I think for me to have that person that, well, first of all, I should say that somebody else that was, I had a big brother, big sister. I was a part of that program when I was younger. Mm -hmm and that person, because I didn't have any any friends, (laughs) um, she was that person for me, and I hadn't talked to her in years, and she was the one that saw the bruises on my face when I was doing my school ID, and um, she's the one that reported me, and so, you know, two weeks after, or, you know, I think it was probably 10 days after it happened, I had bruises still on my face, and then I roll around to, um, you know, going to school, and day one of school is when Officer Hamlin brought me in, and man, he just wouldn't give up. Now, I, I, I confided in Jennifer that this had happened, and, um, and she had the courage to step in and say, I'm going to tell Officer Hamlin, and Officer Hamlin had the courage to just stay on me until I confessed it to him and took, took charge, and I think that's a defining moment for my life. Um, I think I take a lot of pride in that I finally did something. Mm-hmm. If anything, if anything, I hope it helped him to see that both of our, like our relationship was not healthy on any stretch of the imagination. And I think he was probably sick. And I think, I think I know I was sick. I was incredibly depressed. I had a lot of stuff going on, which is why I ended up allowing any of that to happen. And I think, I think so many people don't realize how important their role could be in somebody else's life. Right. All it takes is one word. All it takes is, you just say one thing and you might change everything for somebody. Right. I don't know where I would be if that hadn't happened in my life. I wouldn't take it back either. I think I'll learn so much from it and I want to be able to pour into other people that are going through it. And I actually think that this guy, I think that – I hope that me taking the steps that I did, I hope he knows it's never okay for the woman to hit a man and it's not okay for a man to hit a woman ever. That's Absolutely. Never- And I hope that he understands that on both of our ends, like that was never good, but he has to understand he needs help for that rage. And I hope he realizes that. And I think if anything, at the end of the day, at least it went on his record for a hot second and it won't happen again. Or if it does happen again, they will know there's a history and he can stop it or he can get help or somebody can get help or at a very minimum, somebody does the research and they if it happens to them, they're able to press charges and he goes away until he can't do it
1: anymore. Well, it goes back to what you said early on. If you see something, say something, show up in somebody's life right there, like that officer did, or your friend did for you. Um, you n- did say a couple things. Well, I want to like step out just for the audience right now. Can you give a couple signs to somebody who you might see somebody in an abusive relationship? Yes. Because I mean, you were hiding it from everybody. Everybody. I mean, these are the closest people in your world, and they have no clue. Can you give me a few signs?
0: Um, well, if you ask them, I bet you they would tell you that they felt like they did know something was up, um, but they didn't. They didn't. You know, I know that they said that you know they think that our relationship's not right. Um, but ultimately, the signs that you can look for to determine if there's something broken is that they start to withdraw. They pull away from the things that they used to love, um, and they're spending that time doing something that is unimportant but with the other person. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna give you an example. You um, normally used to love to work out, and now all of a sudden, you spend your nights and your days, and every moment that you're off, watching TV with this other person. Mm -hmm. Just watching TV, it's not important. You used to have this workout group, let's just say. Now you don't, and you just spend your time. Okay, well that's that, you can understand. Some people don't like to exercise, okay? You stop coming to family dinners, okay? Mm -hmm. That's another telltale sign you are never ever ever available ever to hang out with your friends these are all signs that something in this relationship isn't right that doesn't mean it's domestic violence mm-hmm. it just means something isn't right and if you see it you got to say it and then i think something like over time that if you just if you notice this you've got to you've got to say something if you start to notice them being depressed and being down mm-hmm. you've got to know that they're in a place in their world where that should be the best time of their life. They should want to bring this person around their friends and their family. And if they don't want to do that, there is something broken here. There's something broken. And I don't, I can't say what that is. It could be the other person's broken. I don't know, but ultimately something's broken. And it could be that they're depressed. It could be they're having mental illness. It could be that they're in a domestic violence situation and it's just starting out and they don't know how to get out of it. Right. At some point you just have to realize This is somebody's personality. If you know them well enough, you know their personality. And if it deviates dramatically in a short amount of time to this other place, you can guarantee there's something else happening. And it could be mental illness, and you should say something. It could be domestic violence, and you should say something.
1: Well, those tips that you gave us about things to look for, see something, say something, show up in their life when they can't do it for themselves. So you press charges on him your life evolved a little bit more. I'm assuming you graduated from high school. What kind of happened after that?
0: Yeah. Um, so I think from there, I, um, I graduated from high school and you know, I, um, I graduated early from high school. I wanted out as fast as I could. I was still, uh, I was still very depressed during that time period. Um, and then, you know, something kind of happened in my world and, um, I decided that I needed um, to get healthy and I needed to get fit and mm-hmm. uh, I hired a personal trainer. And, um, I worked out with them for a few years, and I wasn't getting the results, I or years, I should say, yeah, I guess it was, about um, about two years, I worked out with them, and I wasn't really getting the results that I was looking for, and I really couldn't figure out what that was, and I stayed with this this trainer, and he was a, a little bit of a, maybe a negative affirmation kind of trainer, and there's there's different types of trainers, I'm a trainer now, so I can say that, and, and some people are motivated by that, and some people aren't, and I, you know, I followed this path, and I was in college at this point, and I'm, I'm working out with this trainer, and I'm not really seeing the results that I'm I'm looking for, and um, you know I ended up you know not working out that trainer anymore, and kind of just I stopped working out altogether, and um, I had a circumstance happen, and it's wild, and this is a whole other you know podcast, but the trainer. (laughs) I
1: know. As you can see, we're going to have about ten podcasts (laughs) with Jesse. She'll be back. (laughs)
0: <laughs> a lot of um, one of those tra- that trainer that I had, um, he he died of a heart aneurysm while working out at the gym. Um, which, by the way, during this process, I um, I wow. actually was working at the gym. And um, when this happened, I wasn't at the gym that day. Um, but I worked there at the gym for him, and he owned the gym. And when he, he died, um, it was just a shock to everyone. And um, but it was a, you know it was it was a horrible experience for everyone. Um, But what was really interesting is that there was this this other guy that I didn't even really know, and um, he had a heart of gold, and I'd seen him in the gym a hundred times, his name was Glenn Johnson. And Glenn became my light, and he became my guide, and he changed my life more than he will ever be able to know, unfortunately. And he, um, so he kind of took me under his wing. I couldn't afford... I couldn't afford as a college student um, to pay for training because mm-hmm. so he let me work out with him either just one like with him when he was working out or he let me work out in his in a small group of people that or women that he trained and um, he used positive reinforcement and he would tell me that I'm doing so good and he would um, you know just give me a lot of affirmation and he would text me and tell me I needed to be at the gym at eight o'clock in the morning you know like he would give me these things. That nobody had ever given me before and um, and just attention in general, and then um, you know over this time period, he helped me learn how to eat, and he just he poured himself into me and um, you know one day I just um, I looked in the mirror and I realized that I'm finally beautiful, I finally feel comfortable in my body, I finally feel like I'm healthy. And Mm -hmm. I had gotten my cholesterol from, I had a cholesterol level of 273 when I was 13 and it had raised all the way back up when I was in my twenties. And, you know, Glenn really helped me to, to, uh, to fix that. And, um, you know, this whole time he did, it with such a humble and, you know, humble heart and he did it for free and he Mm -hmm. became my best friend and, um, he guided me through so much and. I remember I, I graduated top of my class in college, and he was so proud of me, and I remember thinking, like, that's such a cool thing to have somebody that proud of you that, you know, he had no reason to ask me to work out with him. It was, you know, money out of his pocket, right. um, and he did, and, you know, his wife um, is absolutely amazing, and, you know, this whole time I'm sitting here thinking, like, how did I get adopted into this amazing family? Um, and, I get in. I get. I get a job, and I'm in. Co- I'm, I'm in this corporate world, and, and only seven percent of my graduating class. Got to you know, got a job out of school, and I did, and I was so proud, and I was still so unhappy because my job was not rewarding and it was not impactful. Right. So he just poured so much into me. I couldn't believe that I had somebody in my life like that, and um, you know, I think you know, after graduating top of my class and going into this corporate job, I realized that. Life is, is really short, and I wanted to do something great with my life, and I felt like I wasn't. And Glenn mm-hmm. would meet with me for lunch, take even more time out of his day to meet with me for lunch and just let me sometimes cry and just tell him how unhappy I was at this job, but I felt like I needed to be there, and I didn't know how to get out of it. Right. And he would tell me, you know, you should start, you should look at me becoming a trainer. And he started training me, and so he trained me every morning started training me in the morning, but then told me what body part I was using. And he, I had never, like, I didn't know what I was doing the whole year, all those years. I was right. just, moving, you know, and I was getting in shape, and it was great, but I didn't know what I was doing. Well, Scott, let's get forward just a little bit. Um, about nine months later, um, or three months later, really, I met the man of my dreams. Um, and he, he it, it, it was so interesting when I introduced him to Glenn. Glenn was like, okay, I like this one, because he has a lot of my friends. <laughs> He was like, I like this one, and it's now my husband. And, um, you know, me and um, Kevin went on the lake with Glenn, and and, um, we got to spend time with him. And, you know, he was just one of those giving guys. He was actually, he bought a boat to um, teach himself how to swim and then surprise his family with this boat. And um, when this kind of all, um, you know, was going down, you know, he was so proud of himself because he taught himself to swim. Mm -hmm. That was on a Saturday. We went on the boat on a Saturday in in the summer, and I think it was June. Yeah, June. Um, And then on Tuesday, he went out with his wife, and he didn't come back. He drowned. And I lost my best friend, and I lost the person that had made arguably one of the biggest impacts on my life second to my mom.
1: I'm so sorry to hear that.
0: It's okay. Mm -hmm. It's okay because he was – he had – because of that, I knew I had to do something great with my life. And I walked into my job, and my corporate job, and I quit my job cold turkey. And, um, and I didn't know what I was gonna do, really. Um, I, my, my boyfriend at the time was in, um, going through the process to become a CG trainer, a Camp Gladiator trainer. Mm-hmm. And what's crazy is that when this happened, Glenn's a competitor to Camp Gladiator, um, technically. Um, and when this all happened, Camp Gladiator, because I was Kevin's girlfriend of six months, by the way, not long. (laughs) Camp Gladiator said, you're a part of our family. And if Glenn meant that much to you, he means that much to us. And the founders from all the way in Austin, Texas sent money. Trainers from Austin, Texas sent money. Campers from across the Metroplex sent money to his um, search and recovery and funeral fund that I created. Mm and I was able to walk up to his wife the day after the funeral and hand her a check for $7,200. And That's 5, amazing. 000, amazing. $5,000 of that came from Camp Gladiator trainers and campers and the founders. And to me, that was like God saying, this is, this is your family now. Like, mm-hmm. This is where you need to be. And it was all over from there for me. And I... Um, I poured everything into Kip Gladiator for my whole life, the Kip Gladiator. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's changed my life, you know. Um, you know, now I, well, well, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but, you know, I, I think that God does things in mysterious ways, and I don't think that's the only reason. I think there's so many things that Glenn got to do in his life, and it's, he you've taken away way too early, but I always believe that God has a bigger plan, and he knows what he's doing. And Absolutely. Nicole, is wife, by the way, She's amazing and she has a husband now and it's been a baby, well not a baby anymore, but you know a kid. Mm-hmm. They have a daughter too. Um, it was his adopted daughter. He was, he married into a family and um, so she wasn't, he wasn't his biological daughter, but it might as well have been. Glenn loved her so much that <laughs> they're a tight family and I get to watch where their life is now and we all miss Glenn so much. But um, you know ultimately I, I know he's looking down and he's proud and, and nickel. She'll tell me sometimes, she'll message me and tell me how proud I would be of me, And it's
1: pretty cool. Well, Jesse, let me just say, why this is a very emotional story. And you've been fighting through tears and smiles and laughs the whole podcast. And I say this to all of my people who are on the thing, on my podcast, is uh, thank you for your strength. Um, You guys don't get to see her sitting here and she's telling the story. I can see her feeling it and like just reliving these things. And it's very hard. Doing this and coming out and giving all these, I say, dark, dirt, dirty secrets about yourself is not easy at all. Yeah. You have to go to a real dark place again to relive that, to experience it. And Jesse's doing this for the greater good. She sees that this podcast has the potential to spread that message of hope over and over and over again. And she's willing to do that right here. And let me say also, I think everybody out there needs to be a Glenn. Yeah. Find somebody important to them for no other reason that you see potential, not for monetary gain, not because you want to be popular, doing it just out of your goodness of your heart. be the Glen and that's going to be our hashtag for this podcast is be that Glen be out there, showing love in a practical way to people, invest in people, connect with people, and just love on them and look what that did for Jesse. I mean, her life is forever changed because of a man named Glenn yeah and I mean. And I can't be understated at all. So really, thank you for being strong and sharing that story about Glenn. And, and you talked about um, that you were wrapped up in this family of Camp Gladiator. What is Camp Gladiator? What is that all about?
0: Yeah, so we're an all-outdoor adult fitness program, and we started, gosh, nine years ago, almost 10 years ago now. Um, and uh, really, we, we meet in parks and in parking lots, and we're just, we're a community of trainers that are out to uh, impact our communities while working on a team together. Mm-hmm. We pour it to each other, we share ideas, and we create a culture that is all about impacting lives, not just through fitness, mm-hmm. but all in all. And we, we pour that into each other. And um, you know, our mission is to impact um, as many lives as possible through fitness and putting people together, and our visions to be absolutely everywhere that we, we can find people. We want to be in every state. We want to be in every city because we believe that when you bind people together in a way that, that builds positivity, your lives will be changed unmatched, unmatched, just like Glenn's was for me. what Glenn did that for me, and now I get to be a part of a company that wants to do that across the nation, and that is a cool thing.
1: That is an amazing sure. feeling for sure. So Camp Gladiator, you guys are about working out, but it sounds like you guys are in the people business. It's all sure. about the people.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I say this to a lot of people. If you invest in people, I don't care if it's in your business, and everyday life, you win all day, every day. You oh. can't go wrong with that. And it sounds like you've landed in an amazing uh, opportunity with Camp Gladiator. Um, I had a couple of final questions for you. And you've talked a great deal about being in this abusive relationship and how that really impacted your life throughout as a young adult not really having any value and things like that. If someone is listening today and they are in an abusive relationship, what bit of advice or hope can you offer for them to not necessarily get out, but to just day by day to offer them hope?
0: You know, I think the bit of advice that I can give that I wish I would have known then is to find somebody that you can talk to, anybody. And it's, it's got to be somebody that, that you can trust, but it's also got to be somebody that's got a different head on their shoulders than you. It can't be the same person. It can't be your sister, and, it, and it's sometimes got to be a counselor, and I recommend you do that because um, you can love somebody so much and still be in an abusive relationship, and you need somebody to help you get through that. Um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit biased because I did get out, but I got to say that if you can get out, like, you have no idea the grass is so much greener. And if you just, if you just find the courage to just take a step, you're gonna, you're gonna be so glad. So glad you did. And I can't even believe I have the life that I have now. I'm so incredibly blessed. I have the best husband who never raises his voice and just, you know, he's absolutely amazing. And I have I have so much confidence and mm-hmm. I was so broken then and I didn't even realize how. Every day he was breaking me and he was making me feel less and less and less to the point where I didn't feel like I had any value at all. And there is green grass on the other side, but it takes a lot of courage. You just got to say, I'm going to take it and I'm going to take that courage and I'm going to run and I'm going to find that grass.
1: I think that is amazing advice. I mean, from a person who has gone through it, who has now come through on the other side through so many things. I mean, I think we scratched the surface of your life. If so many things that you went through from a young age to a young adult to a young woman to where you're at now. Um, this is real proof of that things can change, that if you, someone invests somebody, invest in somebody, things can change, and that God's grace can do amazing things in your life. Um, I, I'm sure you would say exactly the same thing. 100%.
2: Um,
1: I, I think you have an amazing story here and amazing outreach. And if somebody wants to talk to you and confide in you and get answers from you, how can they connect with you, Jesse?
0: Yeah. So you can reach out to me um, on my Instagram account, Jesse. Hashtag just fit Jesse too. You can do either one, um, and I'm happy to, to reach out to you back. I am um, I'm all about it. I want to pour into people. That's one of my my goals and uh, my path in life is that I want to be able to be a light for other people. In fact, I wrote my um, my own core mission statement, and my mission statement is to be a positive light and a uh, light in everything that I do. From my work, to my communications, and the people I talk to, and how I talk to people, I want every single thing I do to build positivity, and to build light into their life, so please do reach out to me, Jesse on Instagram, if you're not an Instagram person, that's okay, you can do um, Facebook, um, I'm Jessie Lane Richardson, um, Facebook, backslash, Jessie Lane Richardson, and it's uh, Jessie I-E, and Lane is L-A-Y-N-E, so J-E-S-S-I-E, L-A-Y-N-E, and then Richardson, just like it sounds.
1: Well, to make it even simpler for people, I will put this in the show notes of the podcast, Wonderful. so it's easy, so people can just click right on it and get right in touch with you. Um, I think your core mission statement—you really exude that. You're living that light. I see it from you. I hear it in your voice, and even prior to this, when we talked before, you're just high energy, high. You're just—you told me I'm happy. I'm happy to be alive. I'm happy I can put my feet on the ground and go and work out today and make an impact on people's lives. So you're doing that every day. Um, I can't. Tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the podcast today and sharing your story.
0: It's my joy. It is my joy. If I can help anybody, if it even reaches just one person, I am happy.
1: Well, you've already reached me, and that's, that's one person. You're yes. going to reach many, many people. And so bless you for being here. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a great day, Jesse. Thanks. Thank
0: you, Tim.
1: I really appreciated Jesse for coming on and sharing her story with us. Right now, if you're like me, you're sitting there in awe. The stuff that she went through from early on at a young age, all the different parts of stress and pain and suffering that she went through and is still able to be standing today, that's God's grace. That is strength. That is having a vision for yourself when you couldn't early on. And I'm really blown away by the way she was able to very emotionally and very raw, but be able to tell that story to us today and speak to you. How did you feel when you heard those things? It's not easy to listen to. I know parts of it are tough to hear. I was actually looking up some statistics about domestic violence that really kind of stuck out to me. It says on average, nearly 20 people per minute, per minute, are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States during one year. This equates to more than 10 million, 10 million women and men. That is one person too many. And I'm I'm ashamed that this happens and goes on, but hopefully talking about today, this will offer some hope and encouragement for somebody. And something else that Jessie said in her story that stood out to me, and I was reading this other stat, that says only 34% of people who are injured by an intimate partner receives medical care for their injuries. And it reminded me of her story when she talked about that nobody knew what was going on in her life. That the bruises, the marks on her body, the injuries she sustained from those violent attacks were made as excuses of things that happened elsewhere else. Where I was getting pulled out of a car and things like that and hiding all of that. And that's why I think a lot of abuse goes unnoticed because no one is getting that care and no one is getting that medical attention that they need for those injuries and those emotional scars. And that's why we wanted to talk about it today on the podcast. Like I said at the very beginning, it is a very raw and powerful story, but it is a real story and it's a story that needs to be told. And we could not thank Jesse enough for being the strong person to tell that story. Like in Jesse's story, when you're at the hands of someone who's abusive, you really start to devalue yourself. You start to believe the lies that person's telling you. And sadly enough, you start to comfortable by the lies because with the lies everything's a little bit easier where if the lie is that I'm no good I can never achieve anything I'll never be good at anything no one will ever love me then you can start to use those lies as a crutch in your life like why even try put myself out there no one cares about me anyhow why even try to go after that job I really don't have any good qualities why would I want anyone ever want me And when we start to believe those lies as that crutch, it really holds us back. And so what I'm challenging you guys to do if you're out there and you're believing some of these lies that have been told to you, they're not true. You do have value. And it's true. Some of these things that you're going to have to do in your life are going to be a little bit hard. Like I said, the lies are easy. The lies that we carry are easy sometimes as a crutch. But I want you guys to focus on something that's a little bit hard, that's actually true. And it actually can be done. And I know if you're in that dark spot right now and you don't see it, you don't feel it, that you can get there, but you can. Is it going to be a little hard? Yes. It's going to be a little hard to get past that and to believe the new things about yourself, to believe the things that are true, to believe the things that are possible, to see that future and have that hope outside of that relationship, outside of those lies. And I really, really want that for you. So focus on positivity, focus on the future for yourself, and I'm focusing on all that for all of you guys. And don't forget to be a Glenn. We talked about Glenn in the show. Show up in somebody's life. Be a Glen. If you've ever had a Glenn in your life, you know what it's like to have someone unknowingly pour into you for no reason at all, no personal gain, but just the pure joy of seeing someone succeed. And if you've ever had a Glen pour into you, we want to hear about it. We want to celebrate that person. We want to celebrate the Glens out there, the Glens who are really just showing up in people's lives and making a difference. So if you have a Glen story, make it a comment on our Facebook group or on Instagram and share that. And we want to talk about it on the podcast. We want to celebrate those people who are out there, give them positivity in the world and speaking truth into people. How amazing is that. So don't forget. Be a Glenn to somebody else. And if someone's been a Glenn to you, let us know. We want to celebrate him or her. We've talked about it a lot on the podcast, about subscribing and leaving a written review, how important that is to get the message of hope out. And, again, I will ask you guys, continue to share the podcast. is the greatest compliment to myself. It's the greatest compliment to Jesse and Katie and Katie Ersta and Bonnie and everybody that I've had on the podcast to share their stories so they don't just die here in an audio file in someone's computer. Get it out there so that message of hope is that revolution for people, and they feel it, and they have that extra step to go on, just to push a little bit further when there's that dark light so they see that bright light at the end of the tunnel. Be that bright light for somebody today. If you want to leave your story and don't want to be on the podcast, check it out at unwrittenlifepodcast.com. You can do that there, and we will be happy to share your story on the show. Also, you can email me at tim at unwrittenlifepodcast.com. I'm on Instagram at the Unwritten Life Podcast, and also our Facebook group where the conversation is happening is the Unwritten Life Podcast. Just ask to join, and you are in. You are part of the family. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you all listening, how much it means to me every week to see people downloading the show and then sharing it and talking about it and encouraging the people that have been on the show and telling them how much it means to them, that just really touches my heart and it really speaks to my commitment to the show and to the reason I wanted to do this in the first place. So we've come to the end of another episode, but this is not the end of your life, not the end of your journey at all. Remember, you matter. You can make a difference and your story is still unwritten.